Greetings, Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be reviewing the latest in the Conjuring franchise, Annabelle Comes Home. We'll get into it. And then uh, the latest movie from Danny Boyle and the writer of uh, Love Actually, Richard Curtis, tribute to the Beatles yesterday. Let's get started. Mrs. Warren? Mom? Is everything okay? Something is happening inside your house, and we're not really sure what to do. Can I speak to Annabelle? I'm sorry? You need to give her a soul, dear. She wants a soul. <laughs> Look, I think I've made it clear in the three years I've been doing this show that I am not a fan of the Conjuring franchise. I have never been a fan of the Conjuring franchise. But I don't begrudge people for liking the Conjuring franchise. It's just... I, it has never appealed to me once. I think the best they did was Annabelle Creation in that that was a decent horror movie. Whereas the, both The Conjuring and... Like, the first Conjuring was fine. It wasn't anything to write home about. Second Conjuring is terrible. The, the first Annabelle is god-awful. The Nun is atrocious. And here we've got probably the lowest of the low here. I mean... It's it's such a shameless corporate scheme. And I can't imagine anybody, unless you're so die hard into this franchise that you want more spin-offs, I don't understand what the appeal of this movie is outside of like investors demanding more spin-off monsters cuz that's what the, this is a pilot for the future spin-offs of this franchise. We've gone from being a quote-unquote based on a true story about these two charlatans, Ed and Lorraine Warren, to being a full-on spin-off machine. First it was Annabelle, then it was this nun. They're talking about doing the crooked man of all things, the worst part of, of The Conjuring 2. And now they, they're they introducing, like, five different monsters that they can do spinoffs for. Sweet Jesus, this movie. Um, the actual plot, as it were, involves um, the, the, the uh, Instagram girl from Jumanji, Bethany. Uh, her actress plays the... The asthmatic only, except it only comes up like once after it was introduced, um, babysitter for the Warrens. And they and she babysits their daughter, Judy, who it seems has inherited her mom's powers of clairvoyance. And then uh, Bethany, I'll call her because it doesn't matter what her actual name is. Uh, her friend is apparently a obsessive fangirl. And the obsessive fangirl unleashes all of the evils by letting Annabelle out of her case. I feel like that, like in, in any other movie, that would be considered a spoiler. But that is literally the impetus for this plot. That it, you know that's happening in order for the rest of the plot. That basically is just the inciting incident. So it's not a real spoiler. It's just that's literally the thing that happens. But 
Yeah, it's and then it's just it's just ooh spooky scary monsters. Here we've got the fairy man. Oh, by the way, the first act is literally all set up for the monsters that they want to spin off, and then the entire rest of the movie is showcasing the monsters. So they've got the fairy man, who is essentially a monster version of Charon, the uh, Charon, Charon, the fairy man from Greek mythology. It's essentially that. Um, They've got a literal werewolf in this movie. They've got a samurai, they've got haunted samurai armor, complete with Japanese, uh, like, shouting that it sh that it does at one point. Um, there's a game called Feely Mealy. It's haunted by some kind of ghost that reaches out and touches you somehow. I don't get it. It's not, it's not very fun. I'm guessing that's going to get its own movie too, because why the hell not? And then it just all seemingly revolves around Annabelle, who never leaves home. Why is this called Annabelle Comes Home when it has nothing to do with her going back to the place where she was created? She never left the Warrens' house. It's ne She never leaves anything. Why is it called Annabelle Comes Home? The title makes absolutely no sense. She never goes anywhere. She never leaves the Warrens' house. She stays there. At least, like, when you use the title, when you use the words come home, comes home in the title, Snoopy come home. That's in reference to Snoopy leaving home to be with his original owner. And the title is in reference to Charlie Brown and us, the audience, wanting Snoopy to come home because we miss him. And here... Like, what other... Here, you know what? We're going to go to IMDb and look up all the movies that feature the term come home. More title matches. Here. And not homecoming, but literal the literal coming home. Come home, coming home. Greg and, okay, some TV show uh, called Come Home. Greg and Marie have been married for 19 years, but seemingly out of the blue, Marie walks out on him and her three children, the last taboo of parenting. And it's about, um, you know, in reference to the wife, wanting the wife to come home. Okay, yeah. Um, shorts, miniseries. Well, come home, coming home. Here, what about this one? 2014, Coming Home. Lou and Fang are a devoted couple forced to separate when Lou is arrested and sent to a labor camp as a political prisoner during the Cultural Revolution. Finally returns home only to find that his beloved wife is no, long, no longer recognizes him. Okay, Chinese movie. Man goes to, man is held prisoner and he comes home. Coming home. Yes, he has left home He return, and he is returning home. So yeah, uh, not, not a whole lot of use of the word come home outside of like homecoming. There's a lot of homecoming, like Spider-Man homecoming, take me home tonight. That's in reference to a song. But um, so yeah, Annabelle comes home. The title infers that Annabelle went somewhere. Annabelle doesn't go goddamn anywhere in this movie. She literally stays in the Warren's house the whole time, as does everything else.
Okay, yeah, so I've gone on a... I've just ranted for the last, what, like, minute and a half on the title alone. That's the least of this movie's problems, because Annabelle doesn't barely place any point in this story, aside from, like, being really, really creepy and wanting to take Judy's soul, I guess. But this the whole point of this movie... The whole reason for this movie to exist is to pimp out whole new... It's basically a pitch meeting. This is Warner Brothers and James Wan coming to you, the audience, saying, which of these monsters... It's, it's basically like the democracy that Mountain Dew does. Or is it duocracy? I don't know if they include the M or not. I don't know why they don't include the M. Democracy. Wouldn't that make more sense? Um, but yeah, uh, it's... It's basically like it's ba- they want the audiences to pick which of the spinoffs is gonna is gonna come out. Like, ooh, which of these monsters do you want to see a spinoff of first? Do you want to see the, the literal werewolf, or do you want to see the Charon, Charon, whatever? Well, how do you pr- now? You know what's more interesting than talking about this movie? Looking up the actual pronunciation of Charon, Charon, the the car- the. Ferryman from Greek mythology. Here we go. Pronounced Charon. Okay. Now I know. So, yeah. Do you want the Charon ripoff? Do you want the literal werewolf? Do you want the freaking Parker Brothers haunted board game? Which of these spooky scary monsters do you want to spin off of next? Do you want... You know what? If they were, if they had any balls, they would do, they would do a literal Japanese language movie spinoff of the of the samurai armor. Uh, so yeah, this movie is utter utter garbage, utter trash, just absolutely terrible. Um, teen actors are fine; nothing to write home there. They 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 get nothing to do. They don't screw anything up. Judy, meanwhile, her actress is flat and boring and. Tries to be too much like, um, um, what's his name? Uh, Haley Joel Osment. I don't remember his character's name from Sixth Sense and just plays it, plays it weird and awkward instead. Whereas Haley Joel Osment played like a scared little kid who's trying to deal with these powers. He, um, as far as I can tell from having, having never seen the movie here, Judy's just like trying to do like these one-liners, um, uh, off to the cam- where she's literally staring into the camera, saying the one-liner, and she is just so bad, just so so bad. She's awful. Uh, Adam the Rainworn barely play a part, so the whole reason people like the Conjuring franchise at all, uh, those characters are hardly in the movie. Uh, and also, they pay tribute to Lorraine Warren, who recently died, uh, as though she were a hero. Because, she, you know, once again, the Warrens are absolute charlatans, and there's documented evidence that that says as much. Yeah, we're supposed to feel bad because Judy's getting picked on because her parents are lying pieces of garbage. Oh, poor Judy. You're you're the you're the offspring of two charlatans who are complete you know frauds. But this movie doesn't seem to think so. Yeah, this is, that's another reason why I think this franchise is trash because they keep trying to play up. Yeah, by the way, the actual Annabelle doll was a Raggedy Ann doll, but they can't get the rights to that, so they made up this stupid looking weird d- demon doll that nobody would actually ever want um yeah uh so yeah this this franchise is trash um if you like it fine i'm not saying you're trash i'm not saying you're trash for liking it but 
you know, the franchise is still trash. The Warrens were trash people because they were complete charlatans and hacks, and they took advantage of people. And uh, this movie is a, is just a pilot. It's just trying to be a pi- backdoor pilot for more spinoffs, and it's utter garbage. So yeah, Annabelle comes home. Why can't Annabelle stay home and never and just never bother us again? Ugh. It's gonna be the greatest album of all time. I've got two men who claim that the songs are theirs. Let's see how this plays out, shall we? That's what you should know. Please make some noise for Mr. Jack Mallet. Let me just give you this advice. Song title. Hey, dude. Hey, dude, are you sure? Hey, dude. That's so much better. This one was really highly anticipated between me and my nephew. Um, He and I were both raised by my mom uh, on the Beatles music. So seeing, uh, he still really likes Across the Universe. I haven't seen it in a while. But seeing a new movie featuring the Beatles music and centered on Beatles sort of uh, uh, imagery is definitely was definitely something up our alley and i gotta say it's a good movie uh himesh patel this is my pick of the week annabelle comes home is my unpopped colonel uh himesh patel at, is, is a star in the making like he could easily carry a movie on his own and he carries this one perfectly as a sort of you know uh kind of like you know that he's in that weird instance where he knows something that everybody else doesn't and so he monetizes on that and he, you know, he cat. I mean, you know, utilizes that to his advantage. And um, he and Lily James play well off of each other. Uh, Ed Sheeran, for the most part, plays just this sort of over, you know, this stylized version of himself. And he does all right. He's not, you know, terrible. But the the, the movie doesn't isn't sure whether or not they want to praise him as being an amazing songwriter or just completely dunk on him because they continually dunk on him throughout the movie and it's like this weird mix of like we like Ed Sheeran we we're glad he's in this movie but you know Ed Sheeran's kind of a dork he looks weird and there all these jokes at his expense and I'm not sure if much it's very weird that how they played it but uh, he's fine. Um, there have been worse uh, celebrity cameos and, uh, you know, celebrities playing themselves on screen. But, uh, yeah, um, the premise is is really interesting. And like I said, I've, I have no idea if this has existed before, but it, um, it does, you know, it's really interesting the way they, the way it plays out this whole universe where the Beatles never existed. And as such, you know, there's, there's thing, these things taught, you know, any band that took inspiration from the Beatles never existed either. And so there's these weird things and you find out these weird things about the universe where some, you know, the Beatles weren't the only thing. There are a bunch of other things that never quite, may, you know, you know, happened. Nobody, you know, certain things don't exist. Certain other <laughs> things don't exist. And it's really interesting how they play things out. And um, it uh, and it also and I think the main impetus of um, of um, Himesh Patel's character Jack Malik, how he was this struggling musician initially, and like nobody paid attention to his songs. He wasn't getting any deals. He couldn't really afford to um, produce any music of his own work. 
And then all of a sudden he's able to remember, you know, and that's the other thing too. He's not like a Beatles fanboy, but he is, and like there are points, like he's not, he's not, he hasn't completely memorized all the lyrics and the chords. He has to kind of, you know, re- try to remember them as he goes along. It's like, like he, there's a whole point throughout the movie where he's struggling to remember Eleanor Rigby. And, um, so it's not like he's perfect nailing it 100% the first time. It's like he has to go through and train himself to remember these Beatles songs. And um, and yet once he finally starts to achieve the fame that the Beatles music, because of the Beatles music, he he begins to feel like an imposter because he everyone continues like, oh, how could you write these amazing songs? And it's like, the more and more people praise him for writing these songs, he has to, he, he has to deal with the fact that I never wrote these songs. John Paul, George, and Ringo did, and they just never got famous for it. And he has to deal like like the thing with James Corden, um, you know that scene where it's like we have two guys who say they wrote the songs, and it's like you know that's I won't give away the ending of that sequence, but at the same point, like it's uh, Jack Malik having to deal with the fact that he's taking advantage of all the people's work and, and profiting off of it and people th- and, you know, stealing the credit and in that sort of sense of being an imposter and feeling like, and like when he tries to sprinkle in his own work, everyone hates it. So it's like people only like him because of the Beatles music and it's not him. And it's, and it's really, in- it's a really interesting sort of character arc for him realizing that, you know, just, be, you know, taking advantage and going out and, you know, utilizing the Beatles music doesn't, you know, doesn't, you know, fi- finally achieving the fame, you know, he wanted didn't make him happy in the end. And um, it's loaded with Beatles references. There's even like throughout the movie, my nephew and I were trying to think, is somebody going to be a Mark David Chapman? Who's going to be the Mark David Chapman of this movie? And it, it uh, sadly never goes that way because uh, Richard Curtis, uh, the writer from Love Actually, is a schmaltzy, you know, ugh, I, I just, Love Actually is absolute trash and I have no qualms admit uh, saying that. And if you like it, fine, but it is one of the worst movies I've ever had to watch. And the writer has never really improved. In fact, he's the reason this isn't a five-star movie for me. Because Curtis is just a terrible writer. Thankfully, it's not as a, this isn't as atrocious as Love Actually was. But the love story isn't very good between uh, Jane, Lily James and Jack Malik. Um, Lily James' character, who's a teacher, and Jack Malik, uh, Himesh Patel. Uh, they, their love story ultimately is too clean. It just tie, it, it's all neatly wrapped up in a bow. And it's like, well, you, you set it up, you basically set up all of this conflict and interesting sort of dynamics. And then it's just like, now we're going to brush that away. And it's all happy ending. And it's like, no, no, life, what? You cheated. You cheated. We were supposed to get something interesting and get these real interesting conflicts to rot that happened because of this, how this romance played out. And then you cheated. You cheated. How, you know, you cheated, Richard Curtis. By by you wanting to skip straight to the happy ending, you cheated out of the really interesting conflict that he needed to deal with, that those characters needed to deal with. Uh, so yeah, Richard Curtis is not a very good writer, but everyone else is good. The actors are good. Music is good. Himesh Patel is an amazing singer and uh, musician. Uh, I'm really interested to see what he does next. Uh, Danny Boyle, once again, directs a solid movie. Uh... I'm not sure how this will rank in his uh, filmography. I haven't seen a lot of Danny Boyle movies, 
but it's a solid movie. You know, not one of my favorites for the year, just because once again, Richard Curtis can't write for, for n- nothing and can't write at all. And, uh, but yeah, yesterday pick of the week, solid movie. Uh, I just wish somebody else besides Richard Curtis wrote it because he can't write, but that's just me. Uh, so, but so that's all we got. Those are the new releases for this week. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to tie into, uh, both movies actually with the, with the discussion on telling the truth. Hello everyone. And welcome. I'm Melody. I'm Max. I'm Dexter. I'm Diana. And I'm John. And together we host the book review and discussion podcast, Living in the Stacks. Every two weeks, we take the time to read a book and then meet online to discuss it. We'll talk about what we liked, what we didn't like, and if we'd read the book again. Whatever the genre, whoever the author, whether it's good or bad, we'll read anything once. So if you want to join us, you can find us living in the stacks, available through Gumby Cat Networks. Does t- I didn't realize how much it tied into uh, yesterday because this is mainly about Annabelle Comes Home being based in the Conjuring universe, and the, pro- the the discussion I wanted to talk about was why I personally advocate for more for, you know, for more honesty and truth and trueness to history in biopics and things based on true stories. The Conjuring has since gone way off the rails and and it's no longer true based on any trueness at all but when it started off it was quote-unquote based on a true story and ironically that ties into yesterday in that i find honesty in filmmaking and in telling these true stories to be you know very much more important nowadays uh and i advocate for that a lot and i think people oftentimes will dismiss biopics and give them carte blanche because, you know, making a good film is much more important to a lot of people. And, you know, being honest uh, with the, with the events that happened isn't, isn't, isn't necessarily on, you know, that's why I I deride um, Aaron Sorkin so much when he makes these movies based on true events, because he will whole cloth make up entire sequences that never happened and claim like, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not making a documentary. I'm telling a story. And it's like, uh, you hack. You could have easily told a story based on what actually happened. You're just, too, you're just too much of an egotistical prick to actually try. You couldn't do anything that wasn't putting your own spin on it and making it about you. Sorry, I, I'm just, I, I, I've grown to really despise Aaron Sorkin as a writer. Um, but yeah, I think that. With the whole thing with biopics is that they should be as honest as possible. And while telling a good story is important, it's oftentimes these movies, these biopics are going to be people's only insight into what the about into the story that happened. They're not going to follow that up with a documentary. They're not going to follow that up with what, you know, looking into like articles and stuff. You know, a lot of times people are just going to watch the movie and assume that's what happened. And, that's why I feel like going going in up front and looking at the 
actual truth and and relaying the truth as it happened, you know, 1v1 is the best policy. And a lot of filmmakers don't want to do that because they want to put artistic license on it. They want to tell their own thing. They want to follow the three-act structure instead of, you know, just being true to life. And I feel like that's more filmmakers and writers wanting to add flair to this thing and make it and of course producers a lot because it's a lot of these since a lot of these are made by major hollywood studios it's producers also saying we have to hit certain boxes in order to hit certain genre beats and we can't just make something wholly unique to this person in history and i feel like that's a waste and that you could easily tell a good story and have and be 100 percent true to the facts you want to know how i know because a mathematician and well, not mathematician, but um, I don't know how you would describe him. Uh, David McAd McAndless. Uh, let me pull up him. About here we go. About David. design books, love ideas. Da, da, da. So I think he's a graphic artist. I'm a writer, designer, creative director, and artist. So he's an artist, but his project here is called Information is Beautiful. And he likes to portray... He, a lot of his stuff is about uh, presenting data in these really interesting fashions. So... Um, Like, he breaks that, like, one of his recent ones, if you go to his website, informationisbeautiful.net, breaks down the um, the accuracy of the Netflix documentary, What the Health, and finds that it half of it is misleading or, fa- or, or false in some capacity. Only some of it is true. Um, and, uh, only, yeah, only, like, 48.7% of the documentary is features the truth in some way um compare and then uh, another um breakdown is uh oh here's one um there's two i want to look at uh world's best hangover cure he breaks down um the uh hangover cures by um nate by by different nations the Dutch cure. Okay, come. On. This this feels like a joke on the Dutch. The Dutch cure for hangovers is is beer. That feels like a joke of the Dutch. You know, you know what is a Dutchman? What is a what is the you know what is a Dutch person's cure for a hangover? More beer. <laughs> that feels like a joke at their expense, but maybe it is a thing. If you're from uh, the Netherlands, feel free to comment on if that's a common hangover cure over there. Uh, traditional egg yolk, lemon juice, Worcestershire sauce. Uh, American is just egg yolk and Worcestershire sauce. The Poland has a sour pickle juice for a hangover cure. Hedonistic ginger ale, one lime juice, six brandy, six gin. Once again, more alcohol to cure the hangover. Uh, Germanic mustard berries, juniper berries, and a pickled herring. Uh, isotonic water, one salt, two sugar. Uh, Icelandic water with honey and cider vin- and cider vinegar. Italians and French uh, have coffee for a hangover cure. The Chinese have a green have a strong green tea. 
Uh, medically speaking, the best thing is uh, a diarrhea medicine mixed in with water. Interestingly enough, uh, Rom- Romania uh, has 10 cow stomachs, five root vegetable soup, two creams, and one vinegar. That is quite the hangover cure, I will say that. Uh, and then, of course, in Britain, it's baked beans, egg, bacon, and sausage. So just a, just a British breakfast. <laughs> in Britain, the cure for hangover is breakfast. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, and then another uh, one I wanted to look at uh, is the best albums of 2017. Uh, a cloud, which is done as a cloud. Uh, so you've got... Um, Father John Misty's Pure Comedy, Black Origami, um, Vin Staples' Big Fish Theory, LCD Sound System's American Dream, Lord's Melodrama, Proto Martyrs, Relatives in Descent, Kendrick Lamar's Damn seems to be the biggest one, uh, The War on Drugs, A Deeper Understanding, uh, Perfume Geniuses, No Shape, Jay Z's 444. Scissors Control, CTL, CTRL, uh, Mount Erie's A Crow Looked at Me, Tyler the Creator's Flower Boy, uh, Slow Drive. A lot of these stuff I haven't heard of. St. Vincent's Mass Seduction, Thundercats Drunk. So, uh, and then it's just like basically creates those as like the, um, as like which more, which the most people said was the best album. And, but, Far and away, the big, the most people said Lord's Melodrama and uh, Kendrick Lamar's Damn were the best albums of 2017. Uh, anyway, yeah, I highly recommend you check out his website. Information is beautiful. It's really great graphic work. And um, he breaks down the a, a bunch of recent biopics and displays their um accuracy so bohemian rhapsody was 79.9 percent hidden figures were 74 percent lion was 61.4 percent hacksaw ridge was 52.7 percent the big short was 91.4 percent spotlight was 76.2 percent bridge of spies was 88.8 percent uh imitation game was 42.3 percent very inaccurate american sniper was 56.9 percent Dallas Buyers Club was 61.4%. Uh, 12 Years a Slave, 88.1%. Wolf of Wall Street, straight 80%. Catherine Phillips, 81.4%. Rush, 82.9%. Philomena, one of my favorite movies, 70.9%. A lot of stuff in the middle and the end um, were changed from the actual thing. Social Network was 76.1%. Uh, and then King's Speech was 74.4%. And the most accurate movie, according to this number breakdown, is Selma. Like, the most inaccurate it got was in cases like uh, King, uh, Martin Luther King demands federal legislation protecting and enforcing the black right to vote. Johnson insists that this war on poverty is a greater priority at this point. It doesn't go down well. And it's true-ish. Although some have said this meeting wasn't as confrontational in real life as it was portrayed in the movie, this was pretty much exactly how the conversation went. King wanted the voting rights bill. Johnson promised to do it eventually, but had more politically expedient priorities. And then uh, another instance where it was true-ish was a whole bunch of protesters sit in the jail cell. King is despondent, overwhelmed by the amount of work still to be done. Abernathy encourages him. Although we can't find a source for what they talked about in jail, King did suffer moments of despondency during his civil rights work. And one last one. 
Reeb and other white men have leave an integrated restaurant in Selma talking about King's decision not to march. White supremacists attack. Scenes interspersed with King hearing news of Reeb's murder. Reeb and two other men were attacked by three white men and beaten with clubs after they were were seen eating in an integrated diner in Selma. Reeb died two days later, not at the scene as portrayed in the film. So the only thing they really changed was that he didn't die on the scene. He died from his injuries later. So the only one, like, the most it has is some things couldn't, some things didn't have a source. Like, King and Lewis talk. King wants to put a hold on the march and use a different approach. Lewis tells them they've, they've come too far to turn back now. There's no instance of that scene. There's no source saying that scene ever happened. King calls Young. They agree. Young, they agree King will stay home to be with Coretta the first day of the march. Join them the second day. King did stay home the first day of the march, although we don't know if it was to be with Coretta specifically. So there's no, like, there's some scenes don't have any sources cited that they can cite to be whether they're true or not. But for the most part, everything that happened in Selma did actually happen. And the worst ha- things they changed were, like, his confrontate, like, his talk with King and LBJ's talk wasn't as confrontational. Or one of the white guys who marched with Dr. King was killed, but what he didn't die on the scene. He died at the hospital, but he did still die from his injuries. Like, minor things that didn't, that still weren't um, falsifications of history. They were just, you know, expedient ways of presenting the information. Whereas you compare this to, say, the lowest ranking of them all, uh, Imitation Game, um, some of the things that they completely outright did not, they lied about were, uh, Deniston is briefed about the machine's lack of results. He turns up with military police who break the door down and turn the machine off. Deniston claims the big expensive machine doesn't work. An official from the home office is there. Deniston fires him. The machine wasn't even installed at Bletchley Park. Deniston did not try to shut it down off or fire Turing. Deniston was an experienced crypto- crypt analyst and among these th- among those who debriefed the three Polish experts who had already spent years f- figuring out who- how to attack the Enigma. Another instance of them outright lying was uh, Joe notices there will be an attack on the British convoy. They want to alter the ad- they want to alert the admiral admiralty admiralty admiralty. Uh, but Turing blocks them. They are incredulous. Hugh strikes Turing, but Turing reasons that blocking the German attack will alert the Germans to their breaking of Enigma. The team did not decide which decrypts were to be acted upon. The Admiralty did. There was concern that successful intercepts might alert the Germans. Turing had nothing to do with that. That was all the military leadership deciding which ones to interfere with. Um... Nighttime, Turing hides important papers, decrypted Enigma messages from Nazi command, in his socks under his clothes. He goes to see Joan and shares the documents with her. Can they find a clue? Never happened. Turing would never have committed such a breach of security. Uh, let's take a look at the... Okay, there's a whole couple things here. Um, Turing conflicted inside, says... Mm. Joan is okay with him being homosexual. They can make a life in their own way. She was not the kind of woman to be bothered by bogey words. Um, follow that up with Turing, conflicted inside, says no. He says he doesn't care for her. He is harsh and rejecting. She slaps him. Never happened. The breakup was quiet and very upsetting for both of them. Turing acted honorably. She refuses to go and vehemently asserts herself. No one is going to stop her from doing her important work. She calls him a monster. Joan was passionate about her work, but no, was notably different to men. Okay. Uh, the war carried on for two more years, and the team were forced to calculate statistically who, who to save and who not to save. 
These terrible decisions were not made by the Cypher team, but higher up than the Admiralty and government. <laughs> so it's just like completely all the stuff that acted like, oh, this team did so much work and they made decisions about life or death. It's like, no, nah, no, that was uh, the higher ups in the military's decision, which I don't know why you wouldn't show that instead. So the Imitation Game, while still being a decent enough movie, completely misleads about Alan Turing's life, how he how he was as a person, and uh, the actual um, procedure of the British cyber, not cyber, um, uh, deciphering uh, experiment, like not experiment, but like program, like that whole program was basically they made things up whole cloth about how it actually worked and it's like you don't need to do that like we have that information available to us in the days of google and the collection of all this information available to us you have no reason to make things up anymore because you have information to to what exactly happened that at that time and selma was one of my favorite movies, second favorite movie to come out in 2013. Second only to uh, The Winter Soldier. And it is still an amazing movie that I highly recommend people watch. And the fact that it is 100% accurate to events, essentially, like the only time they, they were inaccurate was in minor details, like in like time and place and how thing, certain things played. And then there were some things that could not be verified. Um... But for the but overall, Selma is 100% accurate. And you compare that, and then you compare things like 12 Years a Slave and Rush are up in the 80s. Uh, I haven't seen the big short, so I can't say how good that movie is. Um, Bridge of Spies, solid movie, 88.8%. Uh, Wolf of Wall Street, good, really good movie. I like it, uh, 80%. So you can always do better. Like, you don't... Hacksaw Ridge, solid movie. There was no reason for you to make up so many things there. Imitation Game, solid enough movie. There was no need to make up all these things. Lion, solid movie, good movie. No reason to make up all of these things. Hidden Figures, good movie. Why did you make things up? Like, some of the things made up in Hidden Figures... Catherine, along with colleagues Mary and Dorothy, are stuck in a broken-down car on the way to work. Catherine didn't commute with Dor Mary and Dorothy. The broken-down car incident isn't in the book. Also, Dorothy never learned to drive and wasn't an engineer, so it's unlikely that she would have fixed the car anyway. Uh, police officer pulls over. He's suspicious. The women are nervous. They show their NASA passes. The officer changes his tune. He's so impressed, he insists on escorting them to Langley. This incident is also not in the book, but it demonstrates the reality that black people drew unwarranted suspicion from the police and his turnaround on seeing the NASA badges shows just how invested people were in the space race. Mary tailgates the officer as he flies to Langley with sirens on, thrilled at the concept of black women chasing a white police officer in 1961 Virginia. As it is in the, the, this, this whole, that whole incident never happened, but it demonstrates the reality that black people drew unwarranted suspicion. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. Another instance, major instance. In the Pentagon briefing, Harrison invites Catherine to take a shot at a major calculation. She pulls it off, stunning the room. No record of this was in the book. She was a vital and brilliant member of a team, but wasn't singled out in the quite the way it suggests in the movie. Workers gather to watch as Harrison personally takes a crowbar to every segregated bathroom sign at NASA. 
Segregation did end at Langley in 1958. The director Harrison's character represents the direct the directors, the multiple directors Harrison's character represents might have had something to do with the decision. We do not know, but they didn't personally remove labels and or bathroom signs. That's the other thing is director Harrison uh, was an amalgamation of the various different directors over at NASA. Which happens. They'll do that for minor characters and things like that all the time. Harrison calls Catherine over hand over, hands her pass for the control room. None of our sources say Catherine was in the control room for the launch. So it's like, good movie, solid movie. These women deserve their own movie. Why are you making things up? Just take what's in the book, what actually happened, put that on the screen. You don't need to like add things to try and make it better, make it more important, because now you're just showing a scene of black women's empowerment because they work at NASA? Like, there's not, like, like, there's no particular need for this fake scene in order to promote this. Like, like, it's good, like, couldn't you have done this while featuring the actual events of these women's lives? That, you know, that's all I'm saying is, like, that I'm sure there were aspects of their lives that made that did push back and were inspirational to women, especially women of color. Why do you need to why do you feel the need to make things up in order to promote that? There's not really a need for it. I guess my thing is it's good to have those empowering scenes, but at the same time, like you shouldn't feel the need to make up those scenes. You shouldn't feel the need. There shouldn't be a, you shouldn't have to make up those scenes in order to showcase that. If you want to showcase that sort of level of empowerment, have a historical fiction story, make it historical fiction, make it a fictional story that features those scenes. Don't make, don't claim to be a true story. And then, altered the actual facts unnecessarily just to be just to promote this message that's otherwise still within the film it's still happening within the film you just never needed to make things up in order to make that message happen it's still there you didn't have to make things up for it though i guess that's my thing is that there's no need to make up facts in the age of google you know, when you have that information available to you, you can't, you don't, you shouldn't feel the need to make things up and lie about the events of what happened. I'm, I'm very curious. What are some of the falsities in uh, 12 Years a Slave? When's this big one? Uh, Northrop runs to fetch Patsy from Shaw's place at Epps Command. Mr. Shaw insults, insists he sit and drink tea with her and Patsy. Mrs. Shaw counsels Patsy that there are worse things than a master's affection. Mrs. Shaw, the slave wife of a, of a white plantation owner, did not have Patsy and Northrop open for tea. The scene was invented to give Mistress Shaw a voice. Okay. Um, there's a whole sequence of scenes. Um, one of the pickers, Uncle Abram, collapses in the field. The black overseer dashes him with water, kicks him. He's dead. Old Uncle Abram was still alive and working the day Northrop left the plantation. So that just, that character was forced to die uh, unnecessarily. Uh, Northrop and two others bury Abram and Penn and set aside for slave graves. He was still alive. Northrop and the other slaves sing Roll, Jordan, Roll by the graveside. He was 
you know, he did not die. Patsy wakes Northrop, asks him to drown her in the swamp, begs when he refuses, he turns his back on her. And the scene appears to have come from a misreading of Northrop's memoir in which he states that it was Mrs. Mrs. Epps who asked, Mrs. who asked Northrop to drown Patsy, not Patsy herself. That would have been interesting. Instead of Patsy begging for death, at the, you know, from Northrop, he gets a, he, he gets pulled aside by the by the master's wife and tell and is ordered to drown Patsy at her command. Oh my God, that would have been even better. Oh man, movie you missed out. Like that was a powerful scene and all, and it's good to that they gave Lupita Nyong'o that powerful scene of hers. So I'm not saying it didn't, you know, that, that that necessarily needed to change, but imagine, oh, imagine that that scene of I forget who plays uh Mrs. Sh now I have to pull up the movie on IMDb who played Mrs. Shaw in Twelve Years a Slave. Um, let me see, Mrs. Shaw, Mrs. Shaw. Um, come on, come on. Come on. There are the Epps. Mistress Shaw. Alfred Woodard. Okay. Okay. So instead of get it going to Lupita Nyong'o, it would have gone to Alfred Woodard. So it would have still been a powerful scene. But yeah, imagine Alfred Woodard telling, uh, as Mistress Shaw telling... Uh, Solomon Northrup to to drown that woman in the swamp to drown Patsy in the swamp how 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 like deeply like insane that would be like it's one thing or it's this character moment where Patsy begs for death and Solomon tells her no but it would be a whole other thing where it's just like this master's wife is demanding you kill another slave ooh um Ford gives Northrup a violin to express his thanks for Northrup's good work Northrop didn't write Ford giving him a didn't write of Ford giving him a violin, but did write of numerous other kindnesses he offered, including instant forgiveness and care following Northrop's escape attempt, which is not in the movie. Um, another one, another one. Uh, a sailor enters, approaches Eliza with the intent of raping her. Robert intervenes to protect Eliza. The sailor stabs him to death. Uh, Robert did die on the ship, but from smallpox. While the rape of female slaves was all too common, Eliza wasn't raped by a sailor on that journey. Uh, and then, um, as they all lie on the floor, the woman next to Northrop grabs him. He pleasures her. When she's done, she turns away and cries. Director and screenwriter made the scene up, stating they just wanted a bit of tenderness. Then after she's climaxed, she's back to where she was. She's back in hell. And that's when she turns and cries. So, like I said, good movies, you know, can be like, I don't know that we needed that scene, like it's a it's it, like it's a it's not a bad scene, but I don't know that we needed those changes. Like I think the movie isn't made ultimately better, although the scene with Patsy and uh, begging for death from Northrop is very powerful, um, from what I remember. But I still feel like if they had stuck to what had happened in uh, Northrop's memoir, it would have been as just as good of a movie. They didn't necessarily need to deviate where they did. But, um, yeah, uh, once again, this just kind of illustrates, I'm just trying to illustrate my, 
mindset when it comes to these, where I look to Selma and I look to these other movies that mostly stick to the facts and it's just only certain area, certain ones that really deviate wildly from what happened. And a lot of the times when they do that, it's the director or the screenwriter or the producer saying, we want to do this thing. You want to promote this sort of thing. We want this empowering scene. We wanted to write this scene and include this kind of moment in the story. And it's like, but you're telling somebody else's story. You owe it to that person to be honest. And you owe it to the audience to present that person's life in the most honest light. That's my belief. When it comes to biopics, it should be the directors and the producers and the writers' responsibility to present that person's life in the most accurate light they possibly can. And to deviate, like I said, deviations, um, when, and like Selma, it, like I said, Selma's 100% according to this website, it still deviated from minor details. Like, one of the guys die, like, the way um, King and LBJ interacted, and the reasoning for why King stayed behind. Um, the, the, the one of the white, uh, marchers dying, wet, you know, the time and place that he died. Um, man comes looking for guns to retaliate with, Young talks him out of it, insisting to the troopers will only hit back harder. Although we don't know if this specific conversation happened, we do know the leaders discouraged all violence. So like, once again, minor deviations that all, that still portray the characters in their true light in their true in their true and how they were in reality and didn't deviate so far from the truth in in so much as to bring um in, in so much as to falsify who they were in reality where the true ed and lorraine warren were complete charlatans tying it back into annabelle and the true and there's documented cases of these like following the conjuring the you know following the characters in the conjuring two the 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 British family that they so like they quote unquote helped if you look if you talk to them what had really happened was those kids watched the Exorcist and then the and then the Warrens came in and, and did were were complete frauds and the kids uh you know grew out you know grew out of that phase and they weren't affected by it. They weren't affected by the movie at, you know, as much. And they admitted that the, that what, that, that they, what they said never happened. And, um, the Warrens just took advantage of them. In fact, let me pull that up. Um, Ooh. Ooh, here's a cracked article. This is fun. Five successful people who everyone forgets are exposed frauds. Um, who are the other ones? They start with Ed and Lorraine Warren. James O'Keefe um, called the right wing Michael Moore. Um, okay, he... And then uh, Teresa Caputo, the Long Island medium, she's been exposed as a fraud. Um, David Barton. Um, 
historical author while through his organization wall builders historical reclamation assisting research and okay so yes i'm right wing nut job um and peter popoff televangelist faith healer okay uh well yeah let's take a look at the warrens um Da, 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 conjuring kind of make that the whole point going to on and on and real adventures of this husband and wife ha house de-haunting team uh, who've made half a century's worth of headlines as honest to goodness Ghostbusters not so much as the wisecracking Bill Murray kind of the as the crap your pants spider walking exorcist kind of da, 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 da. one of the Warren's earliest claims to fame was the Amityville horror which as most people are now aware was an elaborate hoax but what's, the big, but what's the big deal? It's an all fun games, right? Who cares if these people go around selling Hollywood fake ghost stories? Well, another famous case the Warrens detailed in their book, The Devil in Connecticut, about a teenager named Artie Johnson who murdered his landlord while possessed by demons he had inherited from a little boy named David Glatza um, after David was given an exorcism arranged by the Warrens. I think they referenced that in um, Annabelle Comes Home. Carl Glatzel Jr.'s David brother winds up suing the warrant on the grounds that his brother was mentally ill, not possessed, and needed actual help from actual doctors. According to Carl, the warrants promised his family that they'd become millionaires if they would insist that the boys had been plagued by demons instead of completely treatable mental disorder. They also promised that Johnson could beat the rap by using demonic possession as a defense, a seemingly bulletproof tactic that somehow only succeeded in earning Johnson a prison sentence. Oh, I love, I love Cracked's articles. I wonder, I feel like they... I don't know if they're still doing them to check the front page. This is back from 2014. When the Warrens were writing in a dark place, the book upon which uh, the cosmically forgettable 2009 film The Haunting in Connecticut was based, they con they contacted horror author Ray Garten to help. Gar to help. Garten went into the project thinking he'd be interviewing a family who truly believed they were being haunted, but quickly found that the family was deeply troubled and no one involved could keep their stories straight. When he expressed his concerns to Ed Warren, he responded, All the people who come to us are crazy. Just use what you can and make the rest up. Make it up and make it scary. That's why we hired you. While Ed passed away in 2006 and is presumably getting forever pantsed by actual ghosts in the afterlife, Lorraine keeps the family business thriving, most, most recently by acting as a consultant to the 2013 film The Conjuring, a movie about the heroic deeds of Ed and Lorraine Warren and the heroic truck driving skills of Ron Livingston. Hollywood loves the Warrens. The Conjuring was just the latest in this slew of royalty generating films based on their stories and it went on to become one of the highest grossing horror films of all time with the spinoffs and a sequel planned. So next time you're in the theater and you see a horror poster proudly emblazoned with the words based on true events, whip out your phone and Google that crap. Chances are you'll find Ed Warren's grinning face staring back at you, which is the closest most of us will get to an actual haunting. And now Lorraine Warren is dead too. So both the Charlatans are dead and good riddance. But James Wan keeps their keeps their chicanery. Chicanery is that the right word, term for chicanery? Um, well, first off, okay, yeah, Art Cracked is still writing articles. Ooh, they just did one about how Hollywood sucks at depicting LGBTQ people. I have to read that one in a bit. Um, but uh, now I have to look up chicanery. This is very, um, very. Um, Stream of consciousness here. Chicanery. The use of trickery to achieve political financial... Right on. They're chicanery. Uh, James Wan keeps their chicanery alive with his conjuring garbage. And people eat it up. Honestly, I think... Honestly, I buy into more of the idea that people just want to believe that this actually happened. Because it makes life more interesting if these sorts of things are real and not, you know, complete hack, 
you know, complete fabrications made up to sucker us into giving people, you know, keep giving assholes our money. Uh, so yeah, um, uh, I don't know what there, what else to say. Um, I think I kind of hammered my point home and now I'm just going off into wild tangents, um, doing Google deep dives into stuff, but yeah, I still, I still believe that, you know, Hollywood has the resources and they have the capabilities of telling the truth and to not do so is a, is a misuse of their, of their power. And to not do so is a sign that they're too, that they aren't willing to really uphold the truth, uphold truth. And I feel like that's a, that is a mistake on their part. I feel like they ought to be willing to do so. Given that they, given their, uh, the, given their response, you know, I think they have a responsibility to do so, and the the fact that they choose not to is is proof that they need to be held accountable. They start, I think they should be held accountable for misleading and not being honest with their with their quote unquote true stories. And the idea of artistic license is actually just laziness. It's it's you know it's unwillingness to be held accountable. So I'll link uh, David McCandless's um, uh, graphics in the description, so that you can also check out what I was looking at. And uh, if you, you know, if you have your own thoughts on biopics and in uh, how movie, you know, how true biopics ought to be, feel free to share that. Uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. If you agree with me, or if you don't, especially if you don't agree with me, if you have your own opinions on how how true biopics need to be. Uh, I'm very interested to hear your thoughts and have an interesting discussion. With all that said, I think it's time we finish the discussion and move on to our regular segments. First up, with the box office report. And now the popcorn junkie checks in with this week's box office report. So taking a look at this week's um, box office report, we don't see a whole lot of change. Uh, I mean, we do get the two new additions, and then most of it has stayed relatively the same, it looks like. Although Child's Play dropped precipitously in its, what, third week? From number two all the way down. Oh, no, that's its second. That is a bad drop for Child's Play. Just dropped from two all the way out of the top seven entirely. Uh... Meanwhile, Avengers Endgame is getting a boost thanks to the lead up to uh, Far From Home coming out this coming out uh, actually the night of this episode's release Monday. Uh, so yeah, taking a look at the top seven right now, uh, we lost John Wick Chapter Three, we lost Rocket Man, and we lost Child's Play. Meanwhile, Avengers Endgame jumped from thirteen to seven in the lead up to Far From Home, bringing in five point five million dollars, bringing its Domestic grows up to this point to eight hundred forty-one point three million, and now worldwide two point seven billion dollars. Still <laughs> chugging along the juggernaut that it is. Um, dropping from four to six, we've got Men in Black International bringing six bringing in six point five million dollars, bringing its domestic gross up to sixty-five million dollars, and its worldwide gross up to two hundred nineteen million dollars. Made back its budget, essentially, but not exactly breaking records or anything like that. Uh, we'll see if they end up doing a sequel or not. Secret Life of Pets 2 stayed at number 5, bringing in $7 million. Uh, domestic growth so far is $131.2 million, and worldwide is $223 million. So, 
Still a success for Illumination. Next up, uh, Aladdin dropped from three to four, bringing in $9.3 million, uh, making its domestic gross $305 million and its worldwide gross $874 million. I would not be surprised if this, if this ended up break, breaking over a billion dollars by the end of its run. It's, it's that it, all it needs is an extra 200 million. We'll see if it makes it. Uh, premiering at number three is yesterday, bringing in 17 million dollars, making its domestic growth and uh, ma- making that the domestic growth so far. And combined with its worldwide gross, made 24.7 million dollars, essentially earning back its budget, but not accounting for any of the marketing. So, you know, it broke even, essentially. It's, it's on its way to breaking even, it's not a, a massive flop. Um, but yeah, it, I, I'm not surprised that not a lot of people went for it. It's not exactly like, um, it's, it's definitely one more, it's definitely more of like an indie release than a major tentpole release. I'm not sure why they dropped it in the summer, but, uh, at any rate, uh, premiering at number two, not premiering at number one, it's opening weekend is to- Annabelle Comes Home, bringing in $20.3 million domestically. Uh, combined since it opened up on Wednesday, it brought in so far thirty one point two million dollars domestically, and combined with its worldwide gross, has so far made seventy six point two million dollars. And let me take a look since Box Office Mojo doesn't have it. It cost around thirty million dollars to make, so massive success all around. Made back its budget opening weekend without a problem. So. Expect more of these really stupid Conjuring spinoff movies. And maintaining its number one spot for one weekend more, we've got Toy Story 4 bringing in $57.9 million domestically, making its domestic gross so far $236.9 million, and its worldwide gross $496.5 million. People are still clamming for this franchise, uh, although I do hope this is the finale. I, do, I don't want this to continue in perpetuity because we just lost another of the original cast members with Don Rickles. I don't want them to keep hiring sound-alikes and bring, trying to bring in, keep this train chugging along. I kind of want it to just end. You know, they can do like little shorts and vignettes like they did after three, but no more major films. We're, we're good, I think. We don't need to keep re digging that hole although if it keeps making money bob Iger, i'm sure will be glad to demand more anyway that was this weekend's box office and so now that we've looked at the week that was we take a look to the week ahead in trailer talk coming this summer It's Trailer Talk. Rated R starts Friday. Like I mentioned, the first of our major releases this weekend is actually opening up tonight as of this record as of this episode's release. It's not getting real it's getting its release Monday night in the lead up to Tuesday and then finally in all in the lead up to the official uh 4th of July release. So uh, and that, of course, is Spider-Man Far From Home. So let's take a look at that trailer. Uh, be forewarned, this is the spoiler, spoiler trailer, the official trailer. So this is the one that, if you haven't seen Endgame yet, this one has the spoilers for it. In fact, it opens up with Tom Holland saying there are spoilers for Endgame. So with that in mind, let's take a look. 
everywhere I go, I see his face. Just really miss him. Yeah, I miss him too. I'm kind of glad that Happy Hogan know. is carrying on as sort of like know that you were gonna be here after a liaison for uh, Spider-Man and like a, a recurring Spider-Man character now. You gonna be the next Iron Man now? Well, no, I don't have time. I'm too busy doing your job. Oh. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Look, keep up the good work because I am going on vacation. Heads up, Nick Fury's calling you. I don't really want to talk to Nick Answer Fury. Phone. Why? Because if you don't talk to him, then I have to talk to him. I don't want to talk to him. You sent Nick Fury to voicemail? I gotta go. You do not ghost Nick Fury. What up, Darks? What's up? We're just talking about the trip. I'm here in St. Marco Polo. Oh, I think MJ really likes me. That reminds me when I first fell in love. <laughs> You're a very difficult person. Oh. Spider-Man. This is Mr. Beck. Mysterio. Like New world, Beck is from Earth, just not ours. The snap to our hole in our dimension. You're saying there's a multiverse? This is a, this is a cool way to introduce the multiverse. This summer. I'm very curious what these elemental creatures are about. Captain Marvel. Unavailable. But I'm just a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Bitch, please, you've been to space. <laughs> what do you want, Peter? I want to go back on my trip with the girl who I really like and tell her how I feel. MJ, I am Spider-Man. No, of course I'm not. I mean, it's kind of obvious. You're right, you may not be ready, but this is my responsibility. Saving the world requires sacrifice. Sometimes people die. I'm very curious how they make how they how they play Mysterio in this movie. Jake Gyllenhaal's a great choice. Are you going to step up or not? beautiful um and yeah i think kind of going for forward now with mj being i mean that's the thing they go to a school for really advanced learning kids i mean eventually kids are going to figure out logically that peter parker is spider-man so i think having that going in and not having it be like a twist reveal like it usually is when spider-man reveals his identity to his love interest is going to be interesting um i'm very curious about the elementals I'm very curious who else are... I think what I hope for is that the stealth suit does kind of lead into the symbiote. Um, but I don't know how Sony's going to let Marvel handle Venom. But I don't... I kind of... I'm kind of sad that... The, I, I would definitely be sad if the, if the stealth suit doesn't somehow lead into Venom. Because that's that was the whole iconography of this black Spider-Man suit, was that it led into Venom. And so having a black Spider-Man suit that doesn't lead into Venom is kind of lame. So I kind of hope that they do eventually bring Venom into the MCU. Um, and that Sony gets out of its own way and just lets, Spider lets, lets Feige handle their Marvel properties and just rakes in the money. They can, hand, they can do the... Um, into the Spider-Verse uh, style animated movies, just 
no more Venom. Don't try to make Spider Man Venom into Spider Man. That's lame. And then the next release is the latest from A24 and Ari Aster, the director of Hereditary. It is a straight up um, Wicker Man style uh, festive, uh, like, uh, I'm not sure how to describe it. Very Wicker Man. Anyway, let's take a look at Midsummer. I told you that I want to go to that festival in Sweden. No, you said it would be cool to go. Yeah, and then I got the opportunity and I decided Look, I to do it. I don't mind you going. I just wish you would have told me. That's all. Dude, she needs a therapist. You've been wanting out of this stupid relationship for like a year now. And don't forget about all of the beautiful Swedish women you'll meet in June. Okay, guys. <laughs> That's not her again. Seriously? Babe, what's happening? Danny. I was so very sorry to hear about what happened. I'm sorry. I invited Danny to come to Sweden. You know what she's been going through? Christian says you've got this special week planned. It's sort of a crazy festival. Special ceremonies and dressing up. That sounds fun. Yeah, here we go. Yeah, we go. On. Welcome and happy midsummer. Skull! Skull! What time is it? 9 p.m. That can't be right. The sky is blue. This is what 9 p.m. is like here. This summer. <laughs> How long have you two been together? Just over three and a half years. Four years. Really? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? It's like another world. Tomorrow's a big day. Is it scary? Oh, the soundtrack. It has special properties. <laughs> what am I going through? We just need to acclimate. I don't want to acclimate. I want to go. Absolutely not. What's happening? I don't know why you invited us. That's why you look so guilty right now, because you know. We only do this every 90 years. I was most excited for you to come. Ooh. Ah. Oh, I'm so excited. I mean, A24 has been a solid studio. Um that really just gives carte blanche to his directors. And to give it to Ari Aster, did they do Hereditary together? Hold on. Who did Hereditary? That was A24 too. So the fact that they're like, yeah, we liked Hereditary. How about you come back and do your next thing? And they're like, and Ari Aster's like, okay, what if I do like this Wicker Man send up and it takes place in Sweden and then there's this really creepy festival going on and it's like, yeah, do it. And I am... Definitely excited to see how it ends up. So, so that'll be interesting to look forward to. Um, so yeah, now uh, then, so yeah, uh, I'm gonna get my movies out of the way early actually because they're getting in the they're getting them out in the lead up to Fourth uh, of July, and so that means I'm gonna get them out uh, <laughs> uh, within the next couple of days actually. So that actually gives me more time to work on the episode for a change. Weird how that is. 
So uh, that about does it for this week's episode, which means it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, you can do so by whitelisting us on your ad blocker and favoriting our browser. Her website on your browser and uh while you're here you can check out all of our other fine programming uh living in the stacks we just did uh, zen in the yard of motorcycle maintenance and our next episode is going to come out for july uh it's going to be uh simon versus the homo sapiens agenda the book that inspired love simon which uh is going to be very interesting i like it so far but we'll get in into the book next uh month and then you can also check out all of Donna's stuff. I, uh, I, she also ended up seeing the Child's Play remake. Uh, so I'm expecting that episode out so fairly soon, if it isn't already. Uh, oh, that's over on Beyond the Cabin in the Woods. And be sure to check out also Once More with Feeling and The Family Business and all of her other projects. And if you yourself are a podcaster and you want to join our lovely little network and help us grow and expand, you can do so by sending us an email at uh, gumbycatnetworks at gmail.com and we'll get back to you and see if you're a good fit and you can join our happy little family uh, if you're listening to us on the go you, you can find us on, by all your various podcast providers we're on I, Apple Podcast, Google Play, Spotify Spreaker, Stitcher, iHeartRadio and and if you and, and if we're not available to your various podcast provider um, then you make sure to let us know then we can expand into that uh, providers uh, library as well. While you're listening to us, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review. Let people know that you like the show and that they should check it out as well. Uh, uh, you can also share us on your various social media. Uh, the social media home for Popcorn Junkie is facebook.com slash popcornjunkie. That's where all the major announcements are going to be as well as when I'm seeing the new releases. I'm going to try and continually share the Stardust stuff as well, just so I'm keeping active on social media, but I'm also active on Twitter. I'm much more active on Twitter uh, at Corn Junkie Pod. There you'll do, there I do the munch-alongs and the trailer talks, and that's that's where I actually got confirmation from the director of the uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark movie that, the, that it takes place in 1968, interestingly enough. One, at one point, I got um, got sort of like flexed on by the creator of Ugly Dolls. And then when I asked what year does uh, uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark take place, the director himself confirmed it was 1968, which was really cool. <laughs> Twitter's weird, man. Uh, at any rate, you can also follow me on Instagram at Popcorn Junkie Podcast. You can follow me on Stardust at Popcorn Junkie. You can follow me on Letterboxd, Letterboxd, uh at, at Corn Junkie Pod. And uh, there you get uh, my reactions to stuff before the episode comes out. I've also, on Letterboxd, created several lists. You can see uh, the rankings for both the... I, th I think I've done Marvel. I may not have. I'm definitely going to do Marvel in, uh, for Spider-Man. And then um, my rankings for the Godzilla Marathon, as well as the Pokemon uh, Marathon I did. And then... Uh, my current 100 favorite films of all time, um, as of this mo as of the moment, um, that, you know, as of, as of the present. So, uh, that, that is very, you know, likely to change. So if you want to see an active list of my 100 favorite movies of all time, that's on Letterboxd as well, as well as the movies that are going to appear, uh, on 
my end of the year lists, although not in any particular order. They're in the order I watch, not in the order that they're ultimately going to be on the list. So if you want to keep up to date on that, that's all on Letterboxd. So, and you can follow me there at Corn Junkie Pod. And if there's anything else you want to say to me, any kind of feedback you want to give, any kind of uh, thoughts you want to share on the movies that I watched, on the topic that I discussed, if you think I'm going, if I'm too rigid on the idea of uh, truth and biopics and filmmaking, and uh, you want to share that, uh, be sure to do so at popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to uh, have the have your responses read out on the show, you can do so by leaving me a message, leaving that um, permission, either the subject line or the message. Otherwise, I'll just simply paraphrase. That that does it for this week's episode. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and we're finally getting things back on our normal schedule. And it only took and it only took recording before uh, Monday morning to do so. Funny how that is. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio. N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. So, uh, um, I, th- I think that's about it uh, for the discussion, actually. Uh, I'm tired. I'm recording this at like one in the morning, so uh, cut all this.